everyone and happy new year welcome back to the 16 millimeter film crew podcast i'm cindy i'm jermaine aka mr bulletproof <laughs> you went you went on topic with your nickname this week and i'm yeah, dale I <laughs> and i'm dale um, you can watch us on YouTube. You can like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can support us on Anchor for bonus content. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Music, and Spotify at 16mm Film Crew Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at 16mm Crew Podcast and on Instagram at 16mm Crew. Well, and I'm chill with our sofa. What's going on? <laughs> I, I, I didn't know if, if anybody was going to introduce me, but um, hey, I'm chill. What's going on? As you guys can see, we have an amazing guest here, Mr. Cheo Carr. He's the showrunner from Luke Cage. Not only that, he has an amazing background in hip hop. He's uh, basically a hip hop historian. You know, he's one of the uh, one of the guys up there as far as uh, black creatives. One of the guys we kind of, our generation right now look up to and want to follow in his footsteps. Um, and some backstory on how we got him as a guest. I decided to be really cocky and, you know, critique his work. And he decided to, you know, reply on Twitter, which, you know, a lot of times people say stuff to celebrities and famous people on Twitter. You don't respect, expect a response. And I was kind of nervous about responding to, to him. And he sent me his number and then I sent him mine and we had a conversation and we talked. And, you know, kids, sometimes it's okay to shoot your shot to people in a higher higher bracket than you are, you know, and reach out to them. You never know what could come out of it because right now he's on our podcast. So, and I want to thank you for taking out the time to talk to me and also talk well, to us as well. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, because the thing is, is that like Twitter, well, it's, I, I guess I have more fun with it than most people do because I, I, I think sometimes people get really, and and I and I've been there where where you get really defensive and and you, but you can't defend anything in, in, in two hundred characters. You know what <laughs> I'm saying? So it's like at, like after a while you have to have an actual conversation. And um, the thing for me was that um, I I just sensed that you know the I kind of have two attitudes about it. Like essentially I'm. I'm like Candyman. If, if anybody mentions me like three times, like I, I'll appear, you know, <laughs> you know, good, 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 bad or indifferent. Like, like I'll show up and then which always surprises people. Like I, I've gotten the response where like, you know, someone will respond or say something and then I respond to it. And then they're literally like, like you have 20 something thousand followers and I've got like 25 and, and there's like an intimidation. I'm like, well, it's what is people you know what i'm saying it's like i i don't it's just it, the whole social media thing I've, and maybe it's because i'm old maybe it's because i'm almost 50 it, it gets weird after a while because mm -hmm. i think sometimes people put a little too much weight on it you know or having a blue check versus not having one i mean ultimately you know i think that if you make art people are going to have opinions and you have to have the strength to be criticized if something's unfair, I, I think you have to, at the very least, try to. If you if it's hitting you certain way, the the you know the criticism, you gotta you want to respond to it. You want to talk. You want to clear the air if you can. And sometimes the other thing I learned: sometimes you can't. Sometimes people just just want combat, and then mm -hmm. and you and you can't really do anything with that. And it, you know, it's just after a while, you just have to just kind of just hey, I tried. You know what I'm saying? You know, and I, I think really, but I think the, the most important thing is, is 
you know, this whole medium, it's an incredible tool. It, it, it allows you to connect with other filmmakers. You know, it allows you to connect really, I mean, not to get all corny about it, like, like, like I'm about to start selling a website or some shit, but it, it, it allows you to connect with this global community of people that are in the exact same position that you're in to trade tips and then to build and kind of move forward. It used to be that you had to go to conventions to do that. Like you had to go to like Comic-Con when Comic-Con was small, or you had to try to like seek out people that were doing the same thing that you're doing. But now the beauty of it is that you can not only find your own community, you can also talk to people that have experiences and, and can now flow those experiences back in your direction because knowledge really will rise, you know, will elevate all boats, so to speak. You know. Any any questions or or or, or should, should should I start um you know interviewing you guys? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're gonna talk about Luke Cage. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's that's the starting point. Um, I guess I mean how this how it all started was I think the topic at hand. I think what it was some something was going on on Twitter and you had said something and I had to reply to the effect of, um, well, some people didn't get um, authentic Jamaican representation in Luke Cage. So you should be happy to get what we want. And then from there, me and you had our conversation. How do I, I know me and you spoke about it before, um, Jermaine and Cindy and our rest of our listeners, can you explain that process? It was like working with Netflix and trying to get the representation of those issues you had with them at the time. Well, here's the thing. Um, and as much as, as, as I've been pillared, um, justifiably so by, 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 you know, Jamaican Twitter and, and, you know, the, 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 the Jamaican Twitter massive about the accents <laughs> in Luke Cage. Um, I'm somebody, I grew up in, in Connecticut, um, but at the same time with my family in New York City, um, I was always surrounded and, and loved Jamaican culture, you know? And, and the thing is, is that for me, everything that I did in Luke Cage was always influenced by culture, music, the opportunity to tell histories, to kind of, you know, use the show as a prism through which you know, people could look at things differently. And um, when the opportunity came to, you know, looking for a season two villain, um, you know, Bushmaster was, was, was an interesting way to go, you know? And the thing is in the comics, and maybe this is, I, I'm not gonna say this, this, is, this would have remedied the mistake. Um, in the comics, they say that Bushmaster is, they, they, they don't really, they don't. They never say Jamaica. He he comes from. If you if you read like the actual, if you're as much of a nerd as I am, and you read the actual like um, Marvel Universe bios, the Marvel Universe bio for Bushmaster, it says that he that he was from a small a small island in the Caribbean, they, they, and they were they weren't very specific with it. <laughs> and so you know, I thought that if I that God forbid if I got it wrong and made mistakes, that people would be as forgiving of the show as we were of. Forrest Whitaker's, you know, terrible African accent in Black yeah. Panther. Yeah. But the problem is this, and this was what this made me realize, is that Wakanda is fictional. 
So, you, you know, there's that little pieces of, of a South African accent. And you, you have, there's a real language of Zosta. You know, there are all these little smatterings of things, but it's not specific. Jamaica is a history of people, a culture. And if you get any aspect of it wrong, <laughs> you know, but that's the thing. I mean, you know, here it is. I am saying like, you know, the last thing I want to do is, you know, I was always as a kid, like, uh, and, and Mario Van Peebles is a friend of mine, but his, but his, his accent in Jaws 3 was, was awful. I was just like, the last thing I want to do, all I want to do is, is make sure that here, you know, I don't want to do the equivalent of Mario Van Peebles' accent in Jaws 3. What do I do? I like the, the, the no, no one's even, no one even remembers Jaws 3, but like, <laughs> you know, you probably get a, there's probably a meme a minute about how bad the accents were in Luke Cage. So what happens is like, and this was, this is really the thing, uh, you know, with a show is that when you present all episodes at once and, and it's 13 episodes, if you make a mistake in episode one, because you're trying to put out 12 other fires and the whole ship keeps moving, it isn't like it is with a, with a normal broadcast show where something comes out and you get something wrong. And then by the, by the third episode, you can make the adjustment and, and you can fix it. It's just, you're gone. And so what happens is, is episode one in the midst of making the first episode, the response that we got, I'm not, I'm not going to, going to single out any, any particular executive from the Netflix side, but the, but the note that we got was the, the accent is too heavy. We don't understand what's being said. Mm-hmm. And I wanted things to be immersive the way that the way the way that that it was for me growing up as as a non-Jamaican listening listening to dance hall, where at first, you know, you, you listen to a song like, like like Roots and Culture. And at first you think they're saying word them up. And, and then you realize after a while they're saying murder, you know, like so I, I was my whole thing was just like, OK, if you immerse people in it, eventually they'll, they'll begin to understand what's being said. And when that happened. What happens is in order to correct or to try to address a note, you end up accidentally making a hybrid. You end up going off in a branch where it's not authentic anymore. But then what happens is that once you've made that branch, because you're like, oh, well, that problem solved, you just it just kind of just becomes this thing that that you're not being as diligent about. And so it was a combination of that. It was a combination of like, I I should have really not only had people that were native speakers of Patois, uh, you know, just in terms of just making sure that all the dialects were specific and correct. At the same time, it's also comes from the acting side. People want to work. And so when you're trying to cast, I, I think a lot of this has to do, um, and this is not to throw any of the actors under the bus either, but I, I think the only way that you're going to get the quality of, say, for example, Lover's Rock or um, any of what you saw um, with um, that small acts anthology, you know, with what Steve McQueen did. You have a huge pool of actors in England that are very specifically because of of their parents and grandparents and also in some cases themselves have direct lineage Mm -hmm. to, you know, to Jamaica. You you have a pool of actors that, that they've been hearing that accent their whole life. Yeah. And so they're they're able to authentically touch into it. When anytime, even even though you film the show in Brooklyn, you have a, you have actors um, who 
you know, well on their resume say, yeah, I'm doing this. But then it's like when it comes time to actually do it, they're not in the same space linguistically where they're able to do it or or you get a you get a a Canadian hybrid or, or there's all these little things kind of sneak into it so that a native Jamaican hearing it, they're 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 immediately going to hear what's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's going to be as as egregious to them as as it is for me, you know, hearing somebody say hella and, you know, and they're not from Oakland, you know, like it's 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 one of those things where it's just like, you know, a, there were a lot of things that needed to happen that didn't happen. And that I, I take 100 percent fault fault in um, in terms of, you know, missing the forest for the trees, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know where where I was so much more concerned with not getting the history of Jamaica wrong and 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 talking about the Maroons and Nanny and also some of the other elements of of, of resistance and culture that you know the accent thing I didn't I didn't I, I address correctly and then by the time the show is over by the time you have all these things you know there are all these pieces that don't add up. And even though I think things got better as the show went on, you know, all people are going to remember are what they first see. And if you get it wrong in episode two, they're not going to wait around to episode eight or nine just to, to see whether or not it evened out. They're, they're not even going to wait till, till, till episode 11 that we actually filmed in case, you know, you know, so it's it, all, all those things kind of, um, you know, don't help the ultimate cause of really trying to um, address what happened incorrectly. And then on top of everything else, then you, you roll it out. And then I, I think that, you know, um, what happened be- between us when you were reacting to something that I said in 2018, I was coming off of just promoting the show. And, you know, I, that was right around the time where I really was even first beginning to kind of tweet in, with any regularity. And I probably was a lot more defensive than I should have been. And, and my 2020 self, looking back at my 2018 self, that's not the response I would have had at all. Yeah. Because over the years, when people have brought it up, what I've done is I've directly, just like you and I did, I've directly addressed them and say, hey, what's your number? Let's talk. Like, yeah. let me let me, let me me personally apologize to you. And at the same time, let's also figure out, you know, not only what happened, but let's figure out a better way to address what happened. Um Guys, I'm I'm in the well. You, you guys want, want want to get on the podcast? Those are my sons. <laughs> yeah, um, well, I like to ask you. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Cindy. Okay, um, I want to ask you a question. I was watching your complex interview, which was amazing, and you mentioned that within working with Netflix and working with Marvel that you have to know like what battles that you are going to actually like die on the hill for and what to let go. And I don't know, as you were talking about the accent thing, I was wondering like, how do you know, like when is time to back off or how do you know, like when to stand your ground? Like, you know, how do you gauge like what is worth fighting for? Like for them to bring up the point that, well, we can't understand it. Well, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure like how I would feel about that. If I was in the meeting, I would be like, well, the point is to provide the environment and drop people inside of it. And they'll understand the world as they continue to watch. But I'm just wondering, like, from your perspective, like, what is, what, when do you know, like press? Well, 
Well, that, that's the thing. It's, it's, it's three, it's three different battles. Okay. Battle number one for me was, you know, knowing that in episode 11, we actually, you know, had the goal of filming in Kingston, which we did. Um, the importance of that and, and why, and why fighting the battle to, to, to actually film in Kingston and not film in Puerto Rico and, and try to make it Kingston, which is what they probably would have wanted to have done. Um, on both the Marvel and and the uh, the Netflix side, but insisting on that, and then at the same time, it's like um, as you're still filming, um, you know, really what I should have done is I I, I should have leaned, and this is all in retrospect, and this is the thing, it's it's always easier after something you know yeah. happens, but like I should have fought harder casting wise, um, it, 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 particularly in terms of supporting cast. Um, to either cast directly from Jamaica or to um, probably do like, like for example, what, what happened with, if you watch a movie like, like Yardy or, or a few others where they were casting, um, you know, out of the, 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 the British Jamaican talent, talent pool, or, you know, um, like, I, but the, the thing that happens when you have a limited budget is that when it comes to visas, when it comes to the the different logistics of of putting you know of of provide of not just paying the actors but 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 providing for accommodations all these other things, um, what I find now is that you have to be forceful in that and fighting for those things. And um, this was really my only only my second turn as a showrunner. Um, having just pulled off season one and the thing about, you know, without, without having Marvel snipers come out of the woodwork to, uh, to, to you know, to, 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 for violating trade secrets. Um, what I can't, I've been being out of besides everyone that, that could really kill me is, is already been fired. So whatever, but um, <laughs> you know, we didn't have the, we didn't, we never really had the kind of budgets for that show that say, for example, that you see now with Lovecraft country. Or that you see now with with a lot of other shows where this I mean I'm watching Lovecraft I'm looking at CGI and I'm like yo <laughs> they must have had at least three times the amount of money that we had and it's a beautiful thing to see and it's a beautiful thing to see black people in charge like that and having and empowered like that and so in some ways I, I say that a show like ours crawled so that Lovecraft could could soar right. um, and it's also the audience nowadays you know the audience is not going to go for you know, mediocre television level effects. They want, because everything's streamed, they they want feature film level everything. And so mm-hmm. Game of Thrones and a lot of other shows have now raised that bar. And so what's great is that because the, the Luke Cage's of the world and, and Black Lightning's and, and other shows where their audiences have expanded the amount of people in terms of proof that that we watch shows and we support shows, Shows now have these bigger budgets where not only in terms of every aspect of it, you know, you're able to do that. And then also, I mean, if if you look post 2020 in terms of representation, representation across the board, it, it's beginning to improve. It's not where it needs to be, but it's improving. But then, then at the same time, the most important element is that every single specific group that is represented is now studios and uh, everybody knows that. If, you, if there's going to be representation, it has to be authentic from top to bottom. And and it's happening in ways that in some ways it's like it's I wouldn't say shocking, but it's it's really 
it's interesting. So perfect example. I mean, I, I've, I've got a lot of problems with, you know, with the, the TV show, The Stand, because um, I'm a huge fan of the book. And, you know, I shouldn't say a lot of problems. I, 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 <laughs> I, I wish that they'd, they'd adapted it differently. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's just like, I mean, everyone's got their own interpretation. Trust me, I, I know something about what, what that kind of criticism is. But one of the criticisms of the show is the fact that the actor who plays Nick, who is in the book, um, doesn't, you know, can't hear and, and also can't speak, is the fact that they didn't cast an actor who was in real life hearing impaired. That is a level of, speci- of specificity of representation across, you know, that is happening. And so, for example, if you were going to do anything nowadays, and this is a, this is a good thing, it, you know, you would have to um, immediately, uh, from the studio perspective, they would make absolutely sure the things that you would have to try to ask for, or fight for, in terms of Jamaican representation, in terms of all that stuff. Nowadays, you know, because of the fact of avoiding the backlash, of of really avoiding the of making the kinds of mistakes that um, that I made um, on 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 the show. And I, and I say I, because ultimately the thing about being a showrunner is that the buck stops with you. And, mm. uh, you know, like um, that's part of the risk is, a, you know, it's kind of like being a quarterback. It's like when things are going well, you get too much of the credit. When things are going badly, you get, too, you know, too much of the blame. But ultimately it's your team. And so, like, I'll take the fault for that in hoping that if given another opportunity and doing things differently, I would be able to, you know, to do it right. Yeah, that that representation topic is, I think, a recurring one for us personally on the podcast, because mm-hmm. every time we review, we can see like whether it's not even just being a uh, black woman. It's like we can see those different societal issues, whether it's uh, transsexual, LGBT, those kind of things when actors are in those roles. You can kind of see the it's not as authentic as it would be if it weren't that way and i think that's also i think what inspired us with this podcast is because if you look at the podcast environment for most talking about films and stuff it's predominantly white male dominated and there are very little voices especially our we're millennials there's very few black millennial podcasts speaking on film from not just as fans but also people who are entering and trying to enter the industry and we were we were hoping with our podcast to fill that gap. So if we, for us, representation is very important. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I mean, and, and it is important because that's the thing is that for so many years, um, you know, like there weren't, any, it, it was, it was funny. Like, like I, I, I was watching um, the Spike Lee documentary um, um, about the making of, of, the Michael Jackson album Bad. And mm-hmm. it was talking about it, it was a part of the early part of the documentary where Martin Scorsese was was directing Michael Jackson in the video. And Richard Price was the one who, you know, wrote um, you know, the script, so to speak, for for the for for, for the short film that, that that became, you know, bad. And it was interesting because it was like, I mean, I love Clockers, I love Richard Price's work in um in the wire as, as well as his novels but it was he was even saying like how how am i now the representative of 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 the black experience essentially mm-hmm. and, and and even before and, and and there was another spike lee documentary that he made about the making of off the wall where joel schumacher 
at one point was the quote unquote black voice of Hollywood because he wrote Car Wash and The Wiz and, and you know, and a few other things. Um, yeah, my uncle, Richard Wesley, you know, he wrote Uptown Saturday Night, Let's Do It Again. And he was one of the few African-American working black screenwriters in Hollywood for a long time. So nowadays you're seeing new voices, you're seeing new faces and it's, and I think finally it's being addressed and things are getting better, but they they aren't where they need to be. And I, and I, and I think it's just the only thing that that can really happen is, is just to continue to push forward, you know? Um, and, and it's really important, honestly, because, you know, representation, um, I, it's always a balance. I mean, like, I, I, I think that, yes, representation is extremely important. Um, I don't, it's just, but then again, it's like you, you get these happy accidents sometimes because sometimes somebody won't be from the culture and then they make something that's really cool. And so you can't always completely cut yourself off from saying, don't try to do this, mm. you know, um, because art ultimately is art. But I, but I think, I think really the thing to say is that, okay, people have experimented enough with the black experience so that we now have to be the ones to try to get it right ourselves. Right. Right. You know, and, and, and until you let us, you know, come in and out of black culture, the way that white people constantly come in and, and out doing our things is, is really, it's, it's not, it's not just having, you know, it's not about saying, Oh, if, if you're white, you can't make a hip hop movie. It's saying, okay, well, that's great. Like, if you can make a hip hop movie, can 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 I write and direct a, a you know a Harry James novel? Like, mm-hmm. are, are you going to give me the same benefit of the doubt? Because if you are, then then yeah, then there's no argument, you know. Yeah. Yes, I completely agree with that. I'm like one hundred and fifty percent agree with that. Yeah, you that's know? totally true. Um. Well, I have a I have a question. Um. You spoke about it, but once again, in the complex interview, you spoke about living in Connecticut and going back and forth between your mom and your dad and the experience and the differential in um, those environments. Um, mm-hmm. And in speaking about the Black experience, you kind of only see one side of the other and it's blue viewed as a monolith where it's just one size fits all. How has that experience as a child influenced your work going forward to tell, tell our stories? Um, well, it's just, it's interesting. You see, for me, it's, you, you learn like what I call the uh, two Connecticut's, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the stores Connecticut that I, that I grew up in, which is where the, you know, which is the university of Connecticut, you know, and like having to literally drive 25, 30 miles to Hartford to get your hair cut, mm-hmm. you know, always being the only black kid in class, you know, being very fluent. And, you know, I, like I, I think really my experience was more like the um, that that Dave Chappelle skit, where um, you know the one with um, Dave Chappelle and John Mayer, and about like how, how different races react <laughs> react to to, uh, to 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 different music, different instruments, and at the very end, um, one of them um, I think John Mayer was playing "Every Rose Has a Thorn." And and um and, and the brother was like, sorry, man, I'm from the suburbs. And he and, and he started dancing to the song. <laughs> like, like, like that was kind of my experience where I was like, I was growing up listening to like poison and Molly Crew yeah. and um, you know, White Snake and all and, and all, all those 80s bad, you know, Sunset Strip hair bands, <laughs> as much as I was also listening to 
Eric B and Rakim and Ultramagnetic and, you know, a lot of pioneering hip hop groups, you know, coming and working in the mid 80s. But, and then at the same time also, you know, really my life was, I was very much like the black kid in Stranger Things. I was going over to my friend's house playing D&D. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that all these, all this, this schizophrenia, this cultural schizophrenia was, was gonna be the perfect, you know, um, training to be a television writer because it allows me to sub in and out of all these different voices. It allows me to basically, to be able to write from the perspective of all these different people without without personally having to take that perspective, but to, but in, in a way to kind of capture those voices differently, you know, is is kind of um, what what that background allows you to do. And um, it is it's interesting because really in my head, when I write, I I just hear all these different people talking, and then I essentially write down what they say. And and the, I and I have various techniques that I use sometimes. Um, to get to get the characters talking sometimes what i do is like it's in my head it's like i'll get two characters sitting sitting at a diner and i just act like like i'm in the next booth and they're having a conversation i just write down what they say or um you know and i know that makes me sound like i'm civil or some shit like i got all these different voices <laughs> in my head yeah, but but what, what's interesting is is that when you're able to kind of train it and, and tap into that you, you'll have characters saying things that you realize are not necessarily you and then you just write it down and it's just like, okay, like, like I, I remember the, the, the first time I, I wrote the, um, the Cottonmouth speech um, in Luke Cage, where he's like, you, you know, when, when he says, I just stopped you like a little bitch. I, I, I normally, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, use, a, um, use a, um, a, a, a close fist on a woman. I'm like, where the fuck is this coming from? And I, and I'm, I just started to just write, you know, I was just like, I just heard the voice. And I just, I, and I just started, I went in the, and you're able to do that. You, you just kind of just like capture something and then you just write it. And then if you're lucky enough to work with an actor like, like Marshall Ali, you know, it just becomes this, this real thing. It becomes like this extension, you know, and it's like, damn, okay. You know, um, and that's really kind of the, the beauty of the job is that you're able to, when you can work with, with, with actors that, you know, they end up pulling things um, out of you and, and out of your fellow writers um, and the combination of which, I mean, and, that, and that's why it was such a joy to, to watch, you know, Mike Coulter and Simone Missick and um, Alfrey Woodard and Rosario Dawson and Theo Rossi and, and um, all of our actors just do just, you know, you know, Mustafa Shakir, like, like everybody just do like, like incredible things that, um, the late Reggie Cathy, you know, like so many, so many different voices. You, like, what was that like? What was working with Marshall Ali? Like he's, and Alfred Woodard. I mean, these are like the champions of like, black, not even black cinema, just amazing, amazing performers and artists. Like what was like directing, watching, giving them words to say every day? Like, what was that like? Well, you know, it's funny, like, um, you know how they had, I think New York Times published a list where they, they said, like, the um, the the best, the the, uh, the the 30 or 50 best working actors or whatever. And um, I realized that with this, with in episode two of Luke Cage, the scene on the roof, um, because Rob Morgan was also in the scene with Mahershala. I'm, I'm like, damn, well, I got like two of the top 25 in one scene. <laughs> um that scene itself, I, I think, is one of the best things I've ever written. And it was mm-hmm. wild watching it being 
shot because it felt like um it didn't feel like i wrote it i, I was just watching it happen and um it was a it, it was rain like you can't really tell but it was actually raining when we shot that and so we were we we're fighting the rain it was, it was a night shoot and mahershala he kept he he internalizes everything and so he kept saying my name's not cottonmouth my name's not cottonmouth just real quiet and i remember like you have to when you're on set you have to the director is the director. And even if you are the person as a showrunner that is kind of in charge and the actors are always going to look to you, you have to be very careful to not undercut your director because then, if, because then if you do, then all the chaos ensues because then no one will actually listen to the person who's actually in charge of the set. And so I kept going to Paul, like saying like, I, I, I need more from, I need for it to be bigger. And he, Paul, Paul is a genius. And Paul was basically the same. He, I know what he's doing. We're gonna lay back, and then when he finds the space, and then that's what that was the take. My name's not Cottonmouth. You're like, whoa, <laughs> you know. And and that's the thing. Every actor is different, and so a lot of what it is is you have to, you know, listen to what they're reacting to. To 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 me, table reads are incredibly important. Like anytime mm-hmm. that you can get the actors reading the script aloud and and taking their notes before you actually film it, that's valuable time. And um, what I always do in table reads is, is I'm, I'm, I never look at them actually, you know, like we would do these table reads and I would just, I would constantly just be looking at the script. And what I'm doing is I'm just listening to how they're reacting to certain lines. Okay. Is this too long? Should this be shorter? Um, did they change it in terms of how they delivered it? And if I like the change, I, I make the alteration so that when the script comes out, I made their change. And so like by the time they memorize it, it really does feel as if it's, it's coming from an internal place. You know, it's, it's all those changes that, that you make. And um, you know, the thing about Mahershala in particular is that he always had a lot of questions about um, Cottonmouth's background. And so with an actor, you can never say, I don't know. So you just have to just make some shit up. So, <laughs> so, you know, so, he, so he, he, he was constantly like, like, you know, I can't do Mahershala's get that beautiful molecular voice oh, he'd, be like, yeah. he'd be like hey brother like um you know um why, why is he in the music so much and i'm like well as i said because he always wanted to play he always wanted to be a musician as a kid but he, he came from a family of gangsters i'm like well that <laughs> i made that up on the spot <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. but that's the thing he kept asking the questions and then we right. kept having i kept having to basically come up with some things and then we go back to the writer's room and then we would we would try to make it real and so wow. that's why in, you know, episode seven, where I guess I'm going to spoil the show, um, <laughs> which is which is you know a Kayla Cooper's episode um, where where Cottonmouth dies. Um, to this day, I think uh, I'm kind of shocked that people um, were so angry about the decision to kill Cottonmouth um, because of the fact there was a couple of things. For one, Mahershala when he when he when he agreed to do the show he had just come off of House of Cards. Mm-hmm. And the last thing he wanted to do was be tied to another show mm-hmm. where as a supporting role, he would have a limited ability to do other movies. Because mm-hmm. what he was doing was he was doing Luke Cage, Hidden Figures, and Moonlight all wow. simultaneously. Wow. And wow. Which is why he has, that's why he has the same haircut in all three movies. <laughs> it's because he, he would go from, from set to set. And each character had a different playlist and he would play a different playlist for each character. And um, that was that was what he was doing. And and so the thing was, was that um, 
he his character was always going to die. There was also the thing with okay, like even just this is the kind of thing to talk about in the writers' room. It's like Luke Cage. If Luke Cage ever punched him, he's not he's, he doesn't have any powers. He'd kill him. So how how much longer can you kind of keep that intrigue of that cat and mouse going? And so, um. We got to that episode, and I remember Jeff Lowe was like, "Are you sure you want to kill him off?" I'm like, "I said, I, I, I said, I promised him. I, I promised him that that this was that this was a limited run." And so, so, and then Alfrey, Alfrey was in tears. She's like, "Yo, you should. And I'm like, "I'm like, we no, we got, we got to, we got to stay the course, you know." And then um, we did, and that was what was so interesting was that people were so. That one episode endeared him so much to the audience. I mean, his character that after that, you know, people were pissed. I mean, viewership goes off. I mean, I know the conventional wisdom is, yeah, yeah. You know, the the, the first six episodes of Luke Cage are fired and shit after that is what people say. I don't agree, but a lot of people, it's because we were incredibly effective collectively in the, in our jobs and, and, and Kayla wrote such an amazing script and, and everything happened that, that once it happened, that no one forgave us for it. And then as Jeff later said, Mahershala couldn't have followed Mahershala. Like, you know, because the thing was, was it took us a while to kind of figure out again, you know, when I talk about everything happening at once, it took us a while to finally, to even get um, the, um, Diamondback voice really right or really get his character right. And that didn't really happen until episode 10, honestly, 10 or 11, you know, but by that point, people, people were still angry. And, you know, that's kind of the things about these shows is that if you can make people care at all, to a certain extent, even when you're getting dissed, you still, right. you, you, have, you have still accomplished something because you, you, you know, you're getting them to care. And although I never wanted to have a show that people hate watched mm-hmm. at, at the same time, like, would I would I change anything? No, because I I really think that you know all all the performances that that led up to that moment were, were just so incredible and um and I and I I still really value um all twenty six episodes of the show you know it, and it, it it was something that that I still look back to that, that I learned a lot from you know for moments of triumph and for some of our failures. Wow, that answered a couple questions for me. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but I was probably one of those people who kind of fell off after Cottonmouth died. <laughs> I was lucky to actually go back and watch it again because it really is a good show. Like, I couldn't find many faults in it the I watched it, and I actually finished the second season. But the one thing that really stood out to me was your choice in music. Mm-hmm. Um, I came for the black superhero, but I stayed for the music. Like yeah. <laughs> when I saw um, Raphael Sadiq, and I believe it was one of the first three episodes. It's like, yeah, man. So what? 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 You know, the thing was was that um, I was I was lucky enough to have Adrian Young and Ali Shade Muhammad um, as my partners from the very beginning musically. At the same time, also, I mean, you know. Gabe Hilfer and Susan Kent as music supervisors were, were able to get all these incredible records cleared. Um, I'm I'm very hands-on. So there there are only there are only two there are only two songs in the entire show I didn't pick. 
um, the, 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 the Charles Bradley song, you know, um, Charles Bradley is the character is the um, singer in episode three, you know, mm-hmm. um, who's kind of like the poor man's James Brown. Um, no, I'm sorry. He, he, no, he was episode. We, you know, he, he was episode three. Um, um, in, in the nightclub. Um, I can't remember the name. I think I think the name the name of the song is "Ain't It a Sin." Um, that was one of the only songs I, I didn't pick. But 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 Tom Lieber, um, who is is Marvel, was Marvel exec and had a great taste in music, um, picked that one. Um, but yeah, like all this, like every single song, like I, I was trying to, to be involved with in some way. And we were just lucky enough to have some really great, what was that blood curling scream in the middle of the podcast? <laughs> all right. I think that was my son. I think that was Jomo. Well, you, you, you've been immortalized and you will soon be on YouTube. <laughs> all right. Um, but that, that, that's the thing is, is that you just try to, I, I, I really just wanted things to, to kind of move in a certain way. Um, so one of the things, like one of the biggest influences on the show, um, for me actually is Beyonce. Um, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I, cause what I realized at the time that I, that I was writing, uh, you know, not even writing when I was first just trying to conceive the pilot and second episode. Um, of the show. Um, it was right around the time that not Lemonade, but the record that came before Lemonade, the Black self-titled album. Oh, the visual um, album, yeah. Yeah, when, when she dropped that. Yeah. I always call that Black America's first binge because <laughs> because what happened was when when she dropped all the music videos and the records at the same time, everyone every, everything collectively just stopped. Um, you, know, you, know, you know you're on YouTube right now, right? All right. There's a water machine downstairs. You you you, you want to stay? Fine. Come, come on in. <laughs> Wait. Um, you are you are you gonna um drop your 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 like your, your Instagram tag or something to get, get some views up or something? No. <laughs> <laughs> um. But um. When that first record dropped, everybody just collectively just held their breath. They were like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. And so my thing was like, okay, how do I tap into that? How can I, because I'm already picking song titles as episode titles, and I'm using the same artist, if, how do I make the entire show basically an album? Mm. Like, you know, and how do, I, how do I combine the visual panache of what Beyonce did with that with the experience of what I used to experience as a Prince fan, because as a Prince fan, anytime a Prince record dropped, everybody would go home, turn off all the lights, light some candles and like play the record twice and then get on the phone and call people. You know, like this, this, this was, was before, before social media existed, before you could like tweet, you know, what you were feeling that that was, you know, cause that was my experience with, with, you know, around the world in the day. That was my experience with, uh, Sign of the Times, all those Prince records, all those mm-hmm. conceptual records that would just stop your moment and that you would just listen to at least twice before talking to anybody about. Mm. And so that was the thing with, with, with Luke Cage was like, okay, how do we kind of get this brawny show that at the same time, we're going to tap into this musical moment where you can bring all, all of, you know, the hip hop collective into it, but then mirror it to the visuals where they're getting the experience of everything dropping at once. 
And mm-hmm. that was why doing bringing all three elements together, we were ultimately able to be still the only show that on Netflix that that crashed the service, you know, temporarily, you know, because you had everybody from around the world, you know, talking about all these moments and music. And then I'm also convinced that some people just put the show out of the background without even watching it, it just just to just to listen to it, you know. And and that was the thing. And that was the other thing also with what Adrian and Ali did was we were, you know, when, again, going back to to um, your question about what to fight for and how to fight for it. Um, we fought really hard to have a uh, an orchestra for the score. Mm. And we had to fight for for that 14 piece orchestra. Um, and uh, and I'm lucky that we did that because. In doing that, it every, what Adrian Ali did was essentially they basically wrote entire albums worth of music for every single episode. So when you go through the score of both seasons, I, it was amazing what they were able to do. And 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 a lot a lot of TV shows that you see, if you watch like your average CBS procedural, you know they, they're scored, but they usually it's usually like one composer like with a keyboard that's just making a lot of synthesized sounds, as opposed to what it sounds like to actually have like an actual orchestra. Yeah. you know do everything and, and then it, it just gave a whole feel to the show and then and then by the t- and then it was interesting because season one was just a lot of pulling in favors like because with marvel secrecy you couldn't tell people that you were doing luke cage mm. our our code name at the time was tiara so you saying like hey will you appear on the marvel show tiara and they're like hell no i ain't doing that shit <laughs> so so we weren't able to get a lot of people. So I, I basically had opened my Rolodex. And so that was, so, you know, Ali, Shahid Muhammad and um, Rafael Sadiq share a studio in, um, in North Hollywood. And so, so we were literally just able to say, Raph, you know, like, you know, do, do you have anything that we could use? And so that's when he, when he did the song Angel and, and he also, we also love Good Man. And he gave us a good deal on that and did that. Faith, you know, because of my, um, me knowing, having known, you know, the late Notorious B.I.G., you know, that was a, a, another personal favor I was able to call in. And so by getting them for the first two shows and them having such, such a great time doing the show, word of mouth spread that, hey, this is a good show to appear on. And we were able to, you know, to, to get um, other people to appear and really uh, had some great performances, one of which my favorite was, was, um, you know, the late Sharon Jones um, in, in the finale, um, her performance of 100 Days, 100 Nights. And, um, you know, it was really poignant that both her and Charles Bradley appeared on the show and they're, they're both gone now. And mm. so it, it's, you have the opportunity sometimes with these shows to, to immortalize people. And so I was really proud of the fact that we were able to do that. But then a lot of it, again, a, a lot of it is also just like just calling in favors. Like, you know, for again, like D Nice. Is is I've known D Nice for for twenty five years and, and, and is an old friend, and so it was crazy because like having him on the show and having him have you know the whole thing you know his his uh, laptop with the D Nice on it. This was this was before club quarantine or any of that stuff. So it was <laughs> he he always like every time I, I I pop in on Instagram you know and and I say it you know he always shouts me out because he said that being on the show helped him build his brand. So you know it's it's. It's all it's all who you know. And, 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 you know, and that was also the thing. I mean, knowing um, knowing Method Man, I've, I've known Method Man for years. And so getting getting him specifically to, to make that cameo and, and write that song, you know, like that's how it all builds. And, and we did it in a way that I think people had a lot of fun with. 
And um, second season too, like, I mean, it was second season performances were, were incredible. And um, so many of them stand out. Karis one, Rakim, um, you know, Gary Clark Jr. I mean, we, we, we had some, some really, some really, uh, you know, um, Stephen Marley. I mean, we, we had some, some really great appearances as well. So I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of all of it, honestly. Um, since we're on the topic of music and you're talking about all your connections, all these wonderful artists, so Sharon Jones, Charles Bailey, Method Man, everybody kind of knows the notorious Wu-Tang story with you interviewing them hey. and whatnot. Um, but how is that transition for you? Because you first started out as a music journalist, you know, being in college, interviewing people, getting records sent to you to review. How was the transition from that to Hollywood being a showrunner and a screenwriter? for you how was that navigating that whole space for you well it's it's helpful honestly you know the thing was was that um i've been covering hip-hop long enough that when i was writing about it it wasn't like it was really as popular as it was now as it is now and so i'm i'm old in in the sense that like when i first interviewed snoop he only he don't he only up until up into that point made made one record you know, like I, I've I've not known Bustin' Rhymes since he was still in, in Leaders of the New School. Like, you know, um, when when I first met Alishi Muhammad, um, a trackball quest was still together. So so of course I I, I know him and Q Tip and the late Fife and Jerobi and you know and and the thing was was Ali and I really bonded over um, over the song Suck a Nigga because he he gave me a ride to the path train. And the record wasn't Midnight Marauders wasn't out yet, and he and he played me that song, and I was just like, it just was this otherworldly experience, and you know, it was, it was one of the things we talked about. So, really, what it is is when you get like musicians in in their own way, in their own world, um, they're stars, and when you get to know them in the studio, when you're around them, you you, you get to not be nervous around you know these hip hop celebrities, and so. I was able to kind of translate that with actors as actors is one thing to write dialogue. It's something else when you're, you know, when you're with like Regina King or you're with Mahershal Ali or you, are you with all these actors that are now like have Oscars mm -hmm. and like, it's intimidating sometimes. <laughs> and so I, I, so sometimes you just have to just like, just be like, yo, just, you just got to chill and you just got to just focus on, the craft and listening and you get past that nervousness. And so the way journalism is helpful to me is that when I get in those situations where, you know, when Alfrey or Mahershala or Regina is asking me a question about a scene or about something like that, I, I just start leaning back. I, I, in my head, I'm like, okay, imagine if you're writing a profile, like interview them, talk, keep conversation going. And in my head, I'm just I'm just writing an article, you know, even though it's weird because I'm I'm actually technically in charge. But, you know, I can't let them know I'm nervous. I can't let them know. Oh, shit. Like I'm starstruck. Uh, you know, like you just have to just basically just use those journalism techniques to kind of get yourself through it. But then at the same time, also use your journalist eye for for description, for detail and tap into experiences to be able to explain what it is you're looking for when they have questions. And then it just, it's, it's it, in a way, it kind of became a natural extension of, of the experience because um, it just makes me understand the creative and, you know, understand what it is to put everything together. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't really understand really what Puffy does until I became a showrunner. 
like you know <laughs> but but then once you become a showrunner then you're like oh that's what he that's why he's he's a part of all these different pieces although no i'm I'm not gonna be behind my culture doing anything like you know I'm, I'm not a hype man but 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 you know although although the dad was his ad lib <laughs> that wasn't in the script but so I'll, 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 I'll throw mike under the bus for the dad so, but 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 um but you know the, the thing was was i mean that that's the thing that that's that's the job is you know you get to you really have to um center everything that you're doing um around the people that you're doing it with and communication is the most important thing and that was really you know even especially with luke cage um you know the the friendship and collaboration with mike coulter was was really incredibly important um for both of us and and, and still is um because as number one on the call sheet mike always took the responsibility very seriously and was always and always was always approachable and at the same time you know just cared and everybody cared you know simone cared and theo cared and everybody like all the actors i mean that was really the best part of working on luke cage was how well the actors got along to the point when we would all see each other like when we whether it was comic-con or when it was time to do press or anything else what happens with, with a lot of productions is that after the show is over you scatter to the wind and then if you run into each other you, you're cordial but every time we see each other, we're like we're they're almost tears. We're happy to see each other. Mm. Like it's 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 so much fun. Like anytime that, that we get to talk about anything. But it's like that also um with with my fellow writers in terms of the writers' room. Like we're all still connected to each other. Like so it's it's one of those things where it's like the show ending wasn't we were we weren't pissed about the show. We were pissed that we that we didn't get to hang out, and get paid right. for it. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So I like that she said that, well, I, what I love about your story in particular is that everything that she did in your past helped you to get where you are now. And I feel like sometimes, especially in this era, people are just like, okay, I, I just want to do this. But actually the journey is what gets you to like the place that you need to be. And even though it's kind of scary, it's like you, you get to a point where it's like, I know my craft, I know what I'm doing and I'm confident in that. And so I can walk into these more into these rooms and walk up to these actors. And even if I'm nervous, I can still like do my job well because I have a story that needs to be told and that I'm the only person who knows how to tell that story. And I don't know, that's just really like, I was just listening to your interview and just listening to you talk now. And I'm just like, wow, it's so inspiring to like, that it's okay to take your time and get to where you need to be like everything's gonna help you to that next place well because that's well that's the thing it's like you you might not even really know what it is why it is you had an experience why you needed it until you're in that moment and then Mm -hmm. now you know what to say or 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 how to do it so Mm -hmm. like all experience is valuable I, I mean, I, I think it's, I think what it is, is no matter where you are, you have to be specific about what it is you want to do in order, in order to get that first step. And even if you're an entry level person on a production, you, the goal is just to get a job on a production. I don't care what it is because you can learn something valuable from doing that job. So for example, it's like, um, when you start studying the biographies of the people that you admire you can learn from their experiences how you can apply that to yourself um perfect example is someone like 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 um Ava DuVernay uh, DuVernay Mm -hmm. like um she was a publicist 
But being a set publicist allowed her to be on set. And in the case of the movie Collateral, she got to watch Michael Mann interact with Tom Cruise, interact with Jamie Foxx. And being on set for all those moments and she being around to ask questions. Yes, she was doing her job as a publicist, but she was also able to really kind of absorb game. Um, You know, somebody like Frank Darabont, who, of course, you know, wrote and directed Shawshank Redemption and um, Green Mile and a bunch of other legendary movies. I think his start was before he was a writer, he was a set decorator. But being a set decorator, yes, he's moving plants and moving stuff on on set. But again, he got to be on stage, watch actors and learn cadences and learn, you know, um, all the different things. Not only about that, but also because when you're doing set decoration, you have to talk to the cinematographer about colors. Like you have to learn about lighting. You, You have to learn all these different things. And so he was able to retrofit that into his knowledge. Um. For me, I'm basically a, a glorified A&R exec. I, 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 my whole goal of becoming a writer and everything was really to be an A&R, an A&R exec. I, I, I never got there, you know, but, you know, putting together Luke Cage was kind of like putting together a record, you know. And so it's like yeah. it, all those aspirations, I, I just use that energy differently, you know, in, 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 in this. And so it doesn't really matter where you start. It's just that you have to have a goal in mind and you can learn something along every part of the journey to get to a place where you finish. I think I think that's the issue. I think with our like you spoke earlier before we started recording about the whole um, or during the recording about the social media generation, kind of where it almost feels like we're used to having instant gratification. We're not used to working for it. And it's kind of like your experience. You're talking about listening to Prince albums, like with albums or whatever, any, any we're binge watching now, everybody, it's a communal thing. Like as soon as it comes out, we have to instantly talk about it. We want it now. And we like, no, we don't want to take the time anymore to develop and grow our talents. Like mm-hmm. I had a, I was talking to a kid once at my church and he was like, Oh, Dale, what do you do? I was like, Oh, I work for production company and stuff like that. He was like, Oh, I want to do that. But, I don't have any equipment. And I was like, do you have a camera? Do you have a phone? He was like, yeah. I was like, start with that. He was like, nah, man, I need to have an actual camera, man. And I was like, you, you have to learn the basics with the little bit you have before you get the opportunity to move forward with something more intense, like with a DSLR or a red camera. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, th- that that's really, I think the most incredible thing about, you know, I, I don't want to say your generation. I like, cause if I say your generation, then I, I realize how old I am. i mean but but the thing is is that um i'm old enough to remember when you had to have a music player a video camera and a phone and a and a scanner were all separate pieces of technology you didn't have them all in in your pocket and not and now like particularly when, when you start talking about something like you know the um the iphone 12 you know it's literally, I mean, you can shoot high definition, like studio quality, high yeah. definition, mm-hmm. like in your pocket. You, you, you in your pocket have more than Spike Lee had when he shot. She's got to have it, and that's the thing. You know, you would, you would need. You like, she's got to have it nowadays. He probably can make that movie now for five thousand dollars. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and so you have to kind of remember that, and you have to look at. She's got to have it. You have to look at a Clockwork Orange because mm-hmm. a Clockwork Orange, I think, was shot in sixteen. You yeah. know, um, and so mm-hmm. if if you if you basically took She's Got to Have It, 
El Mariachi and, um, you know, Alien, um, which which also has has a lot of in-camera effects. And, you know, like you can take pieces of all these movies and on an iPhone, like just what you can learn about camera angles. And and, um, you know, I think there's really that. And I remember one of I I had a tweet about about TikTok that kind of went off where, where I said that, like, TikTok is completely it's basically you have your average kid on TikTok has this, or, or they're doing like these advanced jump cuts. Yeah. That, like people <laughs> have to go to like people have to go to film school to learn shit like that. Yeah. And, and that's that. And that's now just a part of the visual TikTok language, you know, like, so you've got people that are, that are basically messing with, with editing and, and time structure in this silly way, but without realizing that they're making mm-hmm. themselves filmmakers. Like, I mean, it's just really ju- just about, um, how it applies, um, you know. Um, with um, my wife is, is asking me from stolen interviews, and I said yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I I watch those TikTok videos, and I see the edits, and I'm like, how do you pull that off? Like, I look the amount of time it would take me to sit and pull those edits off at an editing bay, and they do it just like that with their phone. I'm always impressed when I watch those. Yeah, no. Um, I mean, but th- that's the thing. I think part of it is is how helping helping people realize that the technology is never going to get better in terms of when you start out. Mm. So you might as well. I mean, I'm paraphrase James Brown like I always do. You know, you, you know, you you, you got to use what you got to get just what you want. Mm. Hot mm. pants. <laughs> I mean, you know, but, but but that that's that's what he's <laughs> saying. It, it's like you know, you, you you got to basically take whatever tools you have. I mean, and but that's the thing. It's like you always you always think that um, things are going to get bigger and better when you become a professional, and they do. But you'll find yourself going back to the same techniques that you used before you made it. So, like right now, strangely enough, I mean, now that I finally have the setup with with I've got these two gargantuan screens. I've got you know the computer I've always wanted, but I spend most of my time now when I when I write, I write on legal pads. <laughs> No, so it always goes full circle because the thing is, is that with so many screens, you can get distracted. So I find the the best place to do my first drafts is I is writing by hand and then typing what I write, and then it becomes a second draft. And then the other thing that's great about writing by hand is that you can write anywhere. Um, the only limitation though is, is you better not lose your notebook because that's it. <laughs> there there is there there is no cloud for a notebook. No. You know, and, and, you know, but, but other than that, it's just like, it doesn't really, there's no, there's nothing stopping you, but you from starting right now is, is, is essentially what I really want to say. <laughs> yeah. So how I have a question, what kind of advice would you give? Um, I know we spoke of being news post, we spoke about that thread of, you know, Black creators connecting to black creators and so on and so forth. How would you engage, or let's say, what, what would how would you tell somebody younger than you following your footsteps? How would you reach out to them? How would you help them? What would advice would you give somebody who's starting out in this industry per se? Um, well, figure out what your goal is, and then and then use the crew of people around you mm-hmm. to accomplish that goal. Because when you start studying, like, 
how people came together and clicks and all that stuff. Like, so my, my favorite of course is like, I, I'm a huge fan of George Lucas and uh, Francis Ford Coppola. And when they built Zoetrope, when they, when they, when it was basically their friends, Hey, you got a camera, we're in film school. You like this, you like that. Yeah. And they all just kind of, they, mm-hmm. they connected and they started making films with each other. They found more people like them. And I don't think any of them knew that they were going to be these Titans that they became, but when they all knew each other, they were just, they were just trying to figure it out like anybody else, you know? And even when you look at someone like, like Martin Scorsese and the relationship he has with his editor, Thelma Schumacher, like they met in, in school, you know, Spike Lee and um, half the people that he works with were all friends um, that, that he just kind of can't, you know, like when you look at his relationship with Ernest Dickerson or Barry Alexander Brown or Sam Pollard or, or, or Wynn Thomas or, you know, um, Roby Reed or, or any of the people that I'm rolling off the top of my head that are now like household names, particularly if you know film production. They were just people trying to get a job and they were all trying to get work together when they first started working out with each other. You know, um, half the people I, I know from either as hip hop artists or, you know, people that that are that are still like, you know, writing about hip hop that have now made the transition into, you know, film and television production. Like whether it's like my friend, you know, Mimi Valdez or Dream Hampton or you know, Sasha Jenkins or Selwyn Hines. I mean, we all know each other from magazines, you know, it's like, the thing is, is that, um, you know, or even when, when I first met Gary Gray, Gary Gray was, was, was directing an, an ice, an ice cube video. Um, and I met him when I interviewed Q. Yeah. You know, it's like everybody. Um, I think the person that really kind of made, made it incredibly democratic for me was John Singleton. Um, well, my uncle, of yeah. course, my uncle Richard is really my first and my greatest influence. But the thing about John was that when I met John, he was he was already, you know, John Singleton, you know, all caps, Oscar nominated the whole nine. But he never acted like that. No, no. Yes, absolutely. John absolutely had an ego. I mean, but he was funny with it. He wasn't like egotistical. He was just funny. <laughs> I mean, you know, he, he was he was like, like, uh, you know, I would always tease him because he, he always have his glasses. So you call him Mr. Mr. Magoo motherfucker. Like, you know, he was, but he, but he, but he, he, but he was, he was a funny, you know, he was just, he was a confident, funny guy that loves cinema. And he was a, and he was a card carrying geek. And all we would do is just, we would go to movies and then go out to eat and then talk about the movie for, for another four or five hours. And, and, but because he was a filmmaker, he could also give you perspective on every aspect of the filmmaking and then tie it to some movies that you've never seen before. And that's what he taught me was just the passion is important and that the passion can come from anywhere and everywhere. And so you always have to be, you know, open-minded and open to talking to people that you can sense the same passion in because you never know who they're going to become, you know? And so my, my perfect example for that is, you know, he, John was, was a film student um, at USC when Dennis Hopper showed the movie Colors. And every single criticism that you had to me about the Jamaican accents, he had even worse to Dennis Hopper about, you know, Colors and all the problems he had with Colors and, and, and the fact that he was from South Central and how, and, and every, he, he went at 
Dennis Hopper. And essentially what happened is after, after, you know, Dennis Hopper had the screening and, and that happened, he realized, so I'm going to do something about it. So he went home that night and he started writing the script that will become Boys in the Hood, mm-hmm. you know? And so what's important is that, you know, whatever your passion is, is that you follow it up with action. Even if that action is small, you never know what that's going to accomplish in terms of your voice and in terms of putting you on that journey towards actually becoming a film. You know, um, the other one, the other thing, the other, the other thing I also say is, is like, um, you know, no matter how far you feel that, that you are from your dream, you have to follow the, inter- if there's an internal voice telling you not to give up, then don't give up. Um, I remember um, Franklin Leonard had a mixer with, um, as he often does, with, with, with writers and directors of various stages, um, just kind of getting together. And I was in the middle of editing season one of Luke Cage. And um, I was talking to a young filmmaker and, you know, he, and he, he had filmed the movie in, you know, in the Bay Area that was kind of a cult classic, but didn't really take off too big. Um, he was also staffed on a couple of TV shows and uh, had just come off a show. And it wasn't really a great experience, you know, his time on that show. And he was working on this movie. And so, you know, we're at one of these mixtures and we're talking and he's like, yeah, yeah. You know, I've been filming this movie um, in, in, in Miami, in Florida, you know, and, and I wrote the script and, you know, it, I was lucky to get financing and, and, you know, it just it's really come together. And he's talking about the movie. And I realized, I say, hey, wait a minute. Yo, so you're the one directing the movie that my man Mahershala is flying from New York on Luke Cage. And he, and he was basically making on weekends. Right. And he was like, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's my movie. Turns out the brother I was talking to is the writer and director, Barry Jenkins, of Moonlight. Mm-hmm. And, and here, 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 here it is, you know, we're at this mixer and, and he doesn't even know if the movie's going to work. And like, yeah, we, we're working on it. And I hope that we get financing, all, all that whole jazz. And, and then, you know, I realized that, you know, that, yeah, Mahershala, is leaving the set of Luke Cage to make that film. And then I'm watching, you know, six months later when he shocks the world, you know? And so I always tell that story and I always tell the story in that way so that when people think about that it can't happen to them or that that they're that far from their dream, I, I just want everybody to know that like, you know, everybody has that moment of doubt, but everybody that stays in it and pushes forward, you know, hopefully they can have the, the experience that, that, that Barry had w- with that movie and that we all have, because, you know, it's like, we're all just have to remind ourselves just to keep pushing forward. Well, it's been so wonderful being able to pick your brain and talk to you. I know your wife is like wondering where you're doing right now. Cause we've had you on for like <laughs> almost an hour and 30 minutes. Um, but it's been wonderful talking to you and being able to pick your brain. I'm going to personally make it my mission for, you know, Fox and the powers that be, they need to bring back Almost Human. I loved that show. And then it disappeared from the airwaves and I didn't get it, I didn't get it back. So I'm going to make it my personal mission now to get that get that restarted again. Um, <laughs> but it's been, a, it's been a joy having you here. Um, such a joy, yes. Such a joy. Um, Thank you bef- so much. Before you go, can you tell us, give any of the fans out there what you're currently working on? What's your slate looking like right now? 
before we go? Um, you know, I always hate to talk about things before they're done. <laughs> um, what I can talk about is right now I'm working on because this has been announced. I never announced anything, but they, it, it got leaked. So fuck it. Um, I'm, 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 I'm adapting this book, 40 Acres, mm-hmm. um, which is which I'm really excited about. It's a great book and it's it has a very tricky premise. I'm either going to win an Oscar or a Razzie. <laughs> it's, 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 it's if if I pull it off, it's, it's one or the other. There's no in between, you know. Um, it's been a very prolific year. I've, I've been working, I've worked on a couple of things feature wise. Like, um, I worked on a Gucci Mane movie for, um, for Imagine Entertainment that, I mean, that, that script kicked my ass, but it was, I, I'm really proud of it. Um, and then at the same time, I also I just finished a rewrite of another movie, um, that I want to talk about, but I can't yet. <laughs> um, and then, and, 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 and then at the same time, I've, I've been, you know, trying to, um, build various shows, um, for my production company with, and my deal television wise with, with Amazon. Yeah. Um, and I'm also excited about a lot of that stuff too. Um, I think the thing for me is I learned a long time ago, um, particularly working on Luke Cage that like, I don't really like to announce things until they're done because the, the, the secrecy <laughs> You know, part of it's paranoia, part of it's superstition, but part of it also is that, like, I find that when you make the announcement about something, unless it's ready to go, it takes some something away from it. It takes something out of it. Like, I, I, I'd, I'd rather just, you know, um, do like, uh, like Beyonce does, and just like, you know, right around the time you're like wondering, you know, what's gonna happen? Boom, a full out pops <laughs> up, you know. Or or, or 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 like like or, or be like like Kendrick Lamar because I know that Kendrick Lamar he's not gonna there's gonna be no announcement no. it's just like boom it's mm-hmm. you know the record's gonna pop up yeah. and um, I hope to, to do the same thing in terms of um, you know film and TV mm. but yeah but trust me I'm I'm working I, I you know <laughs> the the legal pads and are, are at the ready you know I've I've, I've got. I've got my, my, my pens. Like I, you guys can't really see my desk, but my, my desk itself is a whiteboard. So I'm, 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 I'm constantly at work and um, I'm just really excited. I, you know, I, I pray for everybody's safety because this COVID shit is no joke. Mm. So like, I'm serious Be, um, being in Seattle where it began and seeing where it is now, it, it's, you never could have told me that it would that it would continue that that it was it would be we, we would be where we are right now, you know. But I think with this opportunity of a stay safe, but also like this is also the opportunity to write. This is also the opportunity to communicate. This is also the opportunity to think about some of the things that you have plans for once this is all over. I mean, and from a filmmaking standpoint. Um, this time um, does not have to be idle. I mean, safety first, always. But but I mean, just in terms of being able to think about your next moves and think about things. I mean, you know, this is the the, the possibilities that have opened up. I think are huge, and and I think that it's important that, that everybody um, you know take take advantage um, of this quiet. Is is what I would say. Take advantage of the quiet. Now, now, now I'm not saying take advantage of of, of the of tragedy and horror because tragedy and horror is our tragedy and horror and should be regarded as such and i'm frankly i'm i'm really pissed at at um you if we are gonna get political for half a second i'm i'm i'm, I'm pissed at, at at how at at the lack of of leadership 
you know, even though I, I didn't, I didn't expect anything from him. You know, he he who should not be named. You know, <laughs> um, Agent, Agent Orange, as as, as 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 my man Spike calls him. You know, I'm just. I'm just hoping that with the shift and the change, I'm just hoping that things change for the better, that people take this seriously because I've got a lot of friends who have family that have died from this and, you know, and are continuing, people continuing to get sick. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm prayerful and, and hopeful that, that we get out of all this. I, I think the three of us here in Atlanta have the same view on it because people oh, have- Oh, you're in Atlanta? Vote. <laughs> yes, vote too. But- if you have, if, if y'all haven't already already cast your early ballots, I mean tomorrow's the day. Yeah, get out there. Yeah, the, the democracy is literally in the three of your hands. If, if, okay, yeah. <laughs> if, if they lose tomorrow and y'all didn't vote, I'm on the podcast. <laughs> you, y'all on, and that's hey. about that. <laughs> I, I voted already. I early voted. I, I, voted. I voted early. So now I'll actually be working the elections tomorrow. So. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's been nice talking to you. Ma'am, madam, would you like closing us out real quick? <laughs> I would definitely close us out. Um, I think that we all learned so much. We are so grateful for Shale. And we are going to go ahead and press on with our pursuits, with all of that advice in mind. And we hope that all the listeners who are listening and watching also gain something from this and continue to follow their dreams and we hope you guys have a wonderful night or day or evening whenever you're listening to this um and we will speak to you next week all right cool well, and well again thank you for having me on and um my twitter is chael c-h-e-o underscore coker c-o-k-e-r um, so, you know, my, my, my DMs are open, like, or, 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 or hit me, or, or if, if, if you diss me three times, I'm probably going to show up anyway. He, so. he will, he will answer your DM to tell you to call him, people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sayonara, guys. All right. All right, guys, thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.